Hello, David. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? Great. How about yourself? And congratulations on winning two Kersler Awards. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a couple of years ago now, but they were, um, yeah, they were the the first thing I ever won for any writing. So it's very special to me. What years were they? Because I used to be a judge. And what categories? Oh, amazing. So I entered, um, the first time I entered was in 2020. So it was during COVID lockdown. Uh, yeah, literally nothing to do. We were in the cell for 23 to 24 hours a day. Some days we didn't get out at all. Uh, and I got this flyer about the Coaster Awards. And thought, wow, you know, this is something I can actually do. So I, I wrote some poems um, and I wrote a a couple of short stories and sent them all in. I think I got a prize for one poem and one, like the opening chapter of a novel I sent in as well. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, well, let's just tell the viewers a bit about you. I've got you committed fraud in 2014, went to jail, like you said, 2020, and while you're inside, you saw a lot of neglect, cruelty, and you ascertained that it seemed to maximize reoffending. And then in 2021, you were released, um, and now you're an activist and a consultant prison inspector. What the hell is a consultant prison inspector? So I, I didn't know this was a job that existed. But about six months after I'd been released, I was on Twitter, and I saw that the HM inspector of prisons and probation were saying they wanted people with what they call lived experience to join a, a team doing a set of inspections. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is this is an amazing idea. So I uh, shared the tweet with a, a friend of mine who I was inside with, who, who runs a, a company now that sort of has you know, people with lived experience doing various kinds of consulting. And they put together a bid, they asked me to help with it. And so come the spring of 2021, oh, sorry, spring of 2022, uh, we, we started doing these inspections alongside the sort of permanently employed prison inspectors. What kind of things do you find when you're inspecting? I mean, a lot of what you'd imagine. I think it was, it, it was, a, it was, you know, uh, the prisons in this country are terrible. So I think that the first one I looked at was, was Ashfield, which is a uh, sex offender specialist prison near Bristol. Uh, and that was particularly hard because of the nature of the offences uh, and that sort of stuff. Uh, my role was to sit down and talk with the with, with prisoners who were coming up to release, trying to ascertain their experiences of uh, the kind of probation system within prison and what, what planning must be done for their release. But in that conversation, you hear all the usual horror stories you'd imagine, uh, acts of neglect that have resulted in people getting injured or dying, you know, complete failures to sort of look after people's health, their safety, their mental well-being. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty tough. Um, and then the second prison I did was uh, Cardiff, uh, which is a, a kind of a classic Cat B local prison. Very similar in lots of ways to Wandsworth, where I served the first half of my sentence. And that was uh, that was like, like going back to Wandsworth. It felt very strange to sort of be in that in that kind of prison, but not as a prisoner. Uh, it was it was very dislocating as an experience. So, what's the worst thing you've uncovered in your inspections? Uh, in one of the, the prisons we were looking at, uh, one of my colleagues found a a guy who was a British citizen with a British passport, uh, but was being put on an immigration uh, deportation hold because the, 
the Home Office had got the paperwork wrong and thought that they were going to, you know, kick him out of the country. <laughs> if you can believe this, and so they weren't releasing him. This guy had finished his sentence, was due for release. They're like, no, we can't release you. You're going to be deported. He's on the way. He's like, I'm a British citizen. I've got, I've got a British passport. You know, uh, like just crazy. And I think the, I mean, the Home Office is just it's hard sometimes to tell if it's malevolent or just incompetent (laughs) David you come across you've got such a pleasant demeanor and you sound very well educated and articulate what on earth led to your criminality because people confounded by my criminality because they said uh, you know I had an education and all this stuff and a lot of them are out thieving for necessity Um, what what led to your criminality that's a, a really good question. I think one that I spent a long time thinking about, uh, you know, in the run up to being sentenced and, you know, while lying on my bunk with nothing to do. And strangely, so I committed a, a fraud offence, but I don't think it was actually driven by money. And that might sound strange. I, I think I, when I was a, a small boy, I went to a uh, quite old fashioned prep school, boys prep school in, in southern England. And it was really just really kind of brutal uh and in a, in a strange way it actually prepared me for prison i think uh but when i was there you know you had the the the, the teachers called themselves the like masters it was that kind of dynamic you know they they would be very cruel to us boys and they would also you know encourage some of the old, older lads to enforce punishment on the younger lads and a lot of this was because they banned corporal punishment so actual kind of canings and beatings a couple of years before I started the school but obviously you had all the same teachers there and you had the same sadists and they just had to find new ways of doing it Uh, so in this environment I think I I just I, I, I learned that the only way to be safe was to hide what I felt and to you know never show weakness never show fear and never show that things have hurt you or upset you because if you let people know they'd upset you they'd you know be straight in there and what was quite interesting actually is in in my time in prison I met guys from lots of different backgrounds as you said lots of them from maybe kind of tougher backgrounds than me you know more deprived and on the face of it you might think we were very 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 different but actually those themes of kind of of other of men being scared and hiding that fear hiding who we really are not wanting to let people know that they've hurt us and sort of building these shells around ourselves and we perform uh, that i encountered again and again and again in guys i met in prisons so i think that's quite a common theme and i think my uh, i sort of became so scared of letting people see who i really was i developed this habit of of lying essentially of lying about what i felt of lying about whether things bothered me and when you sort of combine that with the, the path I took into different sorts of salesy jobs, which have a, uh, a kind of fake it till you make it culture, I think I developed this habit of just, you know, of, of pretending essentially, pretending that I was more competent than I was, pretending that I was more successful, pretending I was, you know, entirely relaxed about things that, I, you know. And I think ultimately when I when I came to commit my offence, I, I was a stupid dishonest decision I lied to a private equity investor I then about how much money I've made historically and then I produce fake documents to support that uh, and I think actually the reason I, I produced those fake documents it sounds so stupid now but I think what was driving at the time was I, I didn't want to be embarrassed by admitting that I wasn't as good as I told them 
which is pathetic, isn't it? I think that is such like a an ego driven thing. But that's I think ultimately that was kind of where it came from, pride, you know. And I think that sort of uh, pride is a is a very dangerous sin. It certainly has been for me. So how did producing those fake documents benefit you? Did they give you a lump sum of money? Uh, no, this is, the, this is the worst thing. So I, I, um, I didn't actually get make any money out of this. So, so essentially, I and some other individuals and this private equity firm will start this company. We all put money into it. Uh, and the, the private equity firm had the, put the largest amount of money in. And that money, though, went to fund the usual operations of the business. And they, they had a, a majority share, majority of the shares in the company. So they, the money got spent on office space, on paying our staff salaries, this sort of thing. And despite all of that, the way that the law around fraud works is I was, because I had, I had told that line, they had said, well, we will potentially invest this amount of money in the company. Uh, the, the law treats that as that's the fraud you've committed, whether or not you receive the money. Uh, and this is not something I realised before I, before I, you know, kind of ended up speaking to the police and then involved in the, the prosecution process. But if you, if you tell someone a lie in England that might result in them giving you some money, even if they don't give you that money, you actually have committed the offence of fraud. Wow. Uh, which is, I think, not intuitively how you might think it works. I had no idea I'm learning stuff here. <laughs> so, um, prep school, how old are you when you enter prep school? Uh, I think I was seven when I went to that particular school. And is that like a boarding well, school? Is it, a boarding? Uh, it, it did have, so it was it was mixed day boys and boarders. So I I didn't board, thank goodness God, I don't know. I think the um, the boarders had an even worse time. So was it an all-boys school then? Yes. And how many years were you in that school for? I was only there for two years. Uh, but I think, And I think eventually my parents realised like how desperately unhappy I was and moved me. Uh, but it's these, I think those, the things that happen to us when we're, we're children really stay with us and affect us, you know. So obviously the root causes of crime are complex. From our interviews, we've ascertained that childhood trauma is a primary factor. Are you saying that those two years probably gave you a lot of trauma? Yeah, absolutely. I think it took me probably the best part of three decades to unpick that and actually get to a point where I I felt I could stop hiding and actually be myself and talk to people and, and you know talk about what I felt afraid of and, and let them see the real me. Uh, so yeah, it, it scarred me for, well, assuming I lived to 70 or 80, about half my lifetime, you know. So you're dealing with that for half your lifetime. After the two years at the school, did you move to a school and the pressure was off then or were there more situations? Yeah. So I think my schooling after that was in kind of much nicer environments. Uh, but I think I never felt kind of emotionally safe. And so I... I sort of went around, you know, pretending that I felt fine about everything, never really letting anyone in. So I, I think I found it very difficult to make and build like close friendships, you know, because if you're always hiding what you really feel, you can never really connect with people. So, and I think that that kind of was the case through through school, even on you know, to university and then into the workplace. I had sort of lots of 
acquaintances and people I'd have a beer with, but actually very few people that I, I kind of really connected with. So did you do your entire education in the independent school system? Um, yes. Okay, would you say, because people think, right, you know, I'm going to get rich and I'm going to send my kids to the most expensive schools and they're going to thrive in the world. Do you think that is um, the, the opposite can happen? Because I do talks in independent schools and state mm -hmm. schools, and I see in independent schools, especially with the borders, it seems like the kids have just been palmed off and there's no mm -hmm. emotional connection with the parents. Yeah, I think there's a uh, there's a thing called a boarding school syndrome, which is this this you know real kind of emotional wounding that we do to children. I think you you can turn small children into very emotionally cold, shut off, essentially maimed beings. I think, uh, I mean, my view, <laughs> I've probably gone the other way now, is that I would uh, I would want to homeschool children my children you know I, th I think I think um I think there's so much harm that can be done and the best one in the world you know they could go to a, a state school and have a horrible time they could go to a, an independent school or a, or a board public boarding school and have a, a terrible time as well because you know, ultimately the people who are looking after them are not their parents and their family they don't love those children in the way I think children need to be loved so I, I think um and I, I certainly I find it bizarre that we we used to in this country, we'd send people off to be to be boarders at six or seven. My grandmother was sent from uh, from British India uh, to England to go to boarding school when she was seven and, and didn't get to go back to India for 60, 70 years, you know. And she, she hated every minute of it. Of course, you know, why would you want to be sent to the other side of the world not see anyone you love anymore? So as you got older then, for example, you said it was seven to nine was the worst period. As you became a teenager... Did you find that the psychological process of what had happened to you with the trauma, you had to self-medicate on anything, alcohol, drugs, or anything like that? I think, I think at the time I didn't realise I was traumatised. You know, I think it's only I'm only able to sort of reflect on this now, uh, and I think kind of in conjunction with the. The trauma was the fact that I, I, I suspect I, I, I'm somewhere on the autism spectrum because I find uh, like social interactions are, are very challenging. I have to sort of think about them in a very kind of structured way, and I need like order. And I find, find sort of, ironically, perhaps I find like dishonest communication really upsetting and really hard to deal with. Uh, and I, I, I suppose when I started socialising, I would definitely I'd go to a party. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd have have some drinks and then I'd be able to relax. And that sort of classic thing, which I suppose is a form of, you know, using using alcohol to, to kind of medicate away that anxiety. And what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were looking <laughs> forward as a, as a teenager? Oh, I've had some terrible, crazy ideas. I, I, I remember at one point I wanted to be a, I thought I wanted to be a research scientist. I don't know. I don't think I had any clue what a, what a research scientist did. Uh, and then I thought I wanted to do something that was just sort of about making money. And I suppose I was quite interested in finding jobs that would give me status. You know, in the way I suspect lots of lots of, of young men and, and teenage boys are. Uh, and probably what I should have done 
from the beginning is try to be a writer because that's what I have actually found in at this point in my life I is actually what I love doing. And what about relationships? Could you hold relationships down or were you, you know, going from one person to the other? Yeah, very much, you know, kind of going from one relationship to the other, more of a serial monogamist uh, than anything. But I think the a lot of that was because ultimately I, I didn't have the capacity to be vulnerable. And if you, you know, if you can't ever really be vulnerable to someone, you know, like the person, you know, the woman you're in a relationship with, you're, you're supposed to love and they're supposed to love you, then I, I don't think you can ever really have a depth of relationship. Um, and because I was, you know, scared of being vulnerable, I wouldn't allow them to support me in the things I was feeling diff- finding difficult. And so I, I think I sort of had this thing where relationships would last 18 months, two years, and max, and then, and then kind of crash and burn. Uh, so, which is very sad. So was, so was that ice around your heart a protective mechanism whereby if you're vulnerable, you're going to get hurt? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I think I learned that vulnerability meant pain, essentially. And so as a child, I developed this really maladaptive technique for not get not feeling pain um, and just didn't never never learn to switch it off and so that just became i think the problem is that habit becomes personality you know if we do the same thing every day whether it's going for a run or behaving in a certain way or shutting off our emotions eventually that'll just become who you are because you don't have to do anything else anymore and what did you do was it did you do a levels yeah yeah which ones? Oh God! Uh, chemistry, biology, history, uh, general studies. I think I did half a maths A level as well. Uh, Good grief! That's quite a intense, workload, that was a long time ago. You're really testing my memory now. That's that's quite an intense workload, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> did you find them easy, or was it hard? Uh, I think I, fa- I found like the the writing ones easier. So, sort of general studies and history, but I, I didn't. I didn't find the sciences particularly easy, and I, uh, I, th- I think probably, like I said, I didn't really have that sort of brain. I'm much more suited to kind of using language. That's my thing. You know, I loved reading my whole life. It, you know, kind of when I was a kid and lonely and sad, it kept me sane. And all the way through to in prison, you know, uh, reading and writing kept my my head together. So, what did you do at university? Uh, I, I started a degree in history, uh, but I didn't actually complete it. I think I just didn't, at that point, I just didn't have the kind of the ability to, to sustain that engagement without someone making me do it. You know, I just, I think I couldn't see the upside. So I, I, I left in my, sort of towards the end of my second year and went and got a job selling forklift trucks. How did you adapt to university life? I was just one long party. I think I, again, I was just, you know, I, I didn't take it seriously. I, I, um, I don't know. I was sort of reading your bio and it sounds like maybe your, your university experience in the early 90s was similar, but I was in um, in Birmingham in 2001. I went to uni there and I, it was like a good party city. Where, you know, kind of went to like God's Kitchen every week and Sun Essentials had a big night there and it was all that sort of stuff, you know, and I um I had a good time, but I, don't, I did, did very little studying. And uh, yeah, I, I did a bit of like club promoting and that sort of thing because it was, you know, it was a 
fun way to earn a bit of cash and, and get into clubs for free and that sort of thing. That was my my time there. So your parents then, what was their attitude towards you dropping out of uni? <laughs> um, I think they were worried. Yeah, I don't think they really, I think they, they were probably worried about me for quite a while. I think they, you know, actually would be, right? I was, I was, didn't really have any direction or focus or I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I sort of, I sort of went and sold forklift trucks for about a year uh, at a place up in Birmingham. And uh, then I, I, I decided that wasn't really for me. And I moved back, back in with my parents for a bit back down south, you know, uh, and then I, I did get a, a job working in recruitment for a while. So I think I worked for the same same recruitment company for seven years. And that kind of started to give my parents a bit more comfort than maybe I was doing something a bit, a bit stable with my life. And with your relationships with your parents then, was is one of them more worried than the other about you? I think mums always worry more, don't they? Yeah. Or maybe they, maybe they express it more anyway. Uh, yeah. So what was yeah. your life like in your 20s? I just, yeah, like I kind of, I, I, I said, mostly working in recruitment. So sort of very, very much sort of salesy, you know, kind of uh, making commission, spending commission, going out a lot, going on holiday a lot, you know, sort of living that kind of uh, partying 20s lifestyle, uh, you know, different relationships in that time. And uh, yeah, I think all through it, though, I was very... I, I suppose I continue to learn these lessons that actually it was, you know, to, and I, I don't want to make this sound like I'm, I'm blaming the recruitment industry. I'm sure there are, there are plenty of people who work in recruitment who are really honest and really different, but it certainly is an industry where uh, you can get financially rewarded for playing fast and loose with, with the truth and kind of trying to persuade people into things, all that sort of stuff. And all those, those approaches to communicating with people, which are maybe a bit kind of, pushy or in some ways dishonest I think again became kind of more habit for me that was just my standard way of getting kind of what I wanted in business and I think that the risk is that spills over into your life definitely so how old are you when you got arrested oh so so I so, th- so I committed the fraud in 2014 but then I was a, I wasn't actually a, so I got contacted by the police in 2018 uh, early 2018, so four years later, and they, they didn't actually come and arrest me. They asked me to come in for an interview, uh, which I did in spring 2018, gave quite a long interview talking about it. I just, uh, it was quite a relief, to be honest, because kind of, I lived with this lie that I told for four, four or so years. And actually, I just sat down in the interview and I just blurted it all out, told them everything I'd done. I didn't, didn't try and sort of deny it. I, and I felt like a weight had lifted off. Um, <laughs> strangers, perhaps at the time I don't think I'd maybe really sort of recognised like you know what the what the kind of implications of what the prison sentence might be, but I, it just felt good to to just to kind of to confess in a funny way. So um, you went like a hardened criminal going no comment. <laughs> no, not, no. I gave like I think I, was in, I think gave like a four hour interview. I was like talking through the whole company structure. <laughs> <laughs> Although to be fair, I think I think at one point my yeah my my barrister said actually quite long. I spent like two hours talking to them about different corporate structures and they didn't really know what to make of it. So he said you almost managed to sort of just blind them with, with detail. But I um 
Yeah, and then they, I got event, eventually got charged in autumn 2018. Uh, in spring 2019, I put a guilty plea, and then it took about almost a year until I got sentenced. So beginning of February 2020, got sentenced. So I, I went to prison about six or seven weeks before the first COVID lockdown started. And how did you adapt to that environment? I found myself going back to uh it the sort of the way i'd coped with with prep school actually because i had this environment where you've got people in charge who are kind of capricious rules that are you know often bizarre not applied consistently uh lots of kind of chaos disorder lots of, of threat so i think i i kind of stepped back behind that shell initially um i wrote a, a journal every day and that really helped, actually. I, 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 every day I'd write down what I was feeling, what I was experiencing. And that helped me a lot, just to sort of process it. But yeah, it was, I, I'd, I'd never, I didn't know anyone who'd been to prison. I'd never been to prison before, obviously. And it, I was just shocked at, Wandsworth Prison is a, is a particularly bad uh, example of an English prison. It's you know it's filthy, it's rotting, it's noisy, it's chaotic. It's you know a night on the on some of the wings. Men are just like some men are screaming, hammering on their cell doors, you know, howling, breaking things. It's not a not a peaceful or calm space at all. Uh, and it's yeah very 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 difficult. But I in that first six or seven weeks, I I, you know, I managed to get myself a job in the library. Which was great. Like it felt like a haven. You know, it was quiet. It had a it's the silly things. It had a carpet, like a cheap, cheap office carpet on the floor. But it was the first carpet I'd seen in in weeks. Um, and with all the steel and concrete, I don't know because it, it's I, I, you know obviously you've you've been to prison as well. You know, there's there's such austere environments. There's no kind of like sensory stimulation, and the library just it felt kind of normal. It almost felt like you could be in a library outside. You know, there was just carpet and books and lights, and it, it felt more like a normal place. So I, and I managed to get a good cellmate after some very strange cellmates for the first six weeks. They managed to get put in the cell with a guy I worked in the library with, and we just got moved into our cell uh, when Boris Johnson announced the the first lockdown, and then it all all changed and got much worse. David, I'd love to get into the nitty-gritty of all this, but we've run out of time. The next guest is about to come in, so perhaps we could get you back on to, to tell love prison that. stories. Um, do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? Sure, yeah. So I'm at Shipley Writes on Twitter and david-shipley.com is my website. All right, well, huge thank you for spending time with us. And viewers, please support the Kersler Trust. They do such fantastic work. They do. Helping, helping prisoners rehabilitate through the arts. All right. Take care, my friend. Cheers. Take care. All right, dude. Bye. Bye.